Today we're talking about what is in my life uh, the main barrier, the primary barrier or obstacle that keeps me from believing or experiencing that I'm one of God's honored children. So we're not talking hypothetical, we're talking about in real life. As we go from workplace to the grocery store, as we interact with our families and our coworkers and our neighbors, what is one of the primary reasons that we struggle to believe, not in our heads but in our hearts, that we are honored by our Heavenly Father? And for me, it's my mistakes. It's the reality that, like that prodigal son... After I've run away and I've come back to the Heavenly Father and I've, I've had my moment of salvation where I said, Jesus, I want you to forgive my sins. I believe I'm honored by you now because of what Jesus did on the cross. The problem is I still make mistakes. I still sin. And I know that's not the case for the majority of you here. But for those of you who do still sin, for those of you who do still make mistakes, today's message is for you. It's for all of us. Sometimes we joke around here, we say, uh, if, you, if you still sin, it doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you a normal Christian, okay? And if you don't still sin, it doesn't make you a good Christian. It makes you a lying Christian, okay? Or a Christian who's living in denial, okay? Peter still sinned after he knew Jesus. Paul the Apostle still made mistakes after he knew Christ as his Lord and Savior. In fact, we're going to see as we go through our study today that who we would call the great heroes of Scripture, the, the giants of the faith, are model believers of God like Abraham and Moses and Noah, King David, Peter and Paul. These were not perfect people. These were people who returned to God every time they made mistakes, and that's why they grew. But let's start with this observation that I, I've noticed in my life. We fixate on where we don't want to go and then end up going there. All right? Now, if any of you are on a diet right now, and maybe there's some pumpkin pie sitting out at home, some whipped cream, or there's some great turkey and stuffing leftovers. Can, can I just see a raise of hands? Who loves stuffing? Or my fellow stuffing lovers. Oh, yes. All right. Good. Good. Okay, so, so you're on a diet and you know like, yeah, that stuffing is probably not what I need right now. Or that pumpkin pie is probably not what I need. But if, if you're on a diet, especially if you're on a diet, then that little island in the kitchen where the pumpkin pie is, or that refrigerator, you fixate on where you don't want to go and you end up going there. Right? Does that happen to anyone? And this also happens with, uh, with more severe things in our lives. When an alcoholic is traveling and they're staying in a hotel room and there's a little mini bar with little bottles of alcohol. Well, for those who don't struggle with alcoholism, they go in that hotel room and there's eh, nothing in there, right? Or those things are overpriced, right? For an alcoholic, that is the only thing he or she sees in the room. And that little bottle just gets bigger and bigger, right? And they fixate on where they don't want to go and they end up going there. We all do this in different areas. For someone who's, who's struggling under uh, the enslaving addiction of lust through pornography or, or other lustful images on a screen, if that person's alone in a room and there's a screen that has access to those images, well, someone who doesn't have that issue might not even notice that screen. Or even think to ever use it for that. But for the person who's fixated, I don't want to go there. 
Man, so often we end up going where we fix our eyes that we don't want to go. I experienced this uh, with bicycling. When I was in eighth grade, I had a really bad bike, bicycle accident. I, it started off with this grand idea, okay? I had a BMX bicycle, and there was this jump that went up, and then there was like an eight-foot drop-off. And I just, you know, I just pictured it in my mind. I could see it. I was going to ride off the edge of that thing, and I was going to gracefully gently land on my back tire and all my friends would be like wow John is so cool and and it just didn't go like that okay I, I, I went off the ramp and my my head went down first and I landed on my face and ended up in the emergency room and for those of you with weak stomachs I won't describe okay but it was this traumatic event. So, so then you fast forward a few years when I graduated from college and I moved to Scottsdale. And I had been riding road bicycles this whole time and racing. And, and my roommate was a big mountain biker. And he's like, oh, John, you got to come out. You know, if you love cycling, you got to try mountain biking. And so he gives me one of his mountain bikes and we get out there. And the trail, I kid you not, the trail is this wide. <laughs> Just enough for the tire. And you know what's on the sides of the trail in, in, in Arizona? Rocks, cactuses, snakes, boulders, ledges, drop-offs, ravines. Nothing good is off the trail, okay? And, and he just takes off. And this trail's not flat, by the way. It's like a mountain bike trail. And my eyes just keep looking at where I do not want to go. I do not want to hit that boulder. I do not want to hit that cactus. And every time I would look where I didn't want to go, I'd go there. All right? And maybe you've experienced this in your life. Maybe with something like alcoholism or pornography. Maybe with something like a thought pattern of resentment against your spouse. Bitterness toward God. Jealousy. Gossip. Addiction to food, addiction to shopping. We all have things that get us off the trail. We know it's not what God has designed for our lives. And we're trying to go down the trail. We're trying to fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him. But our eyes keep going to these things we don't want to do. And we keep doing them. By the way, when you find yourself in that situation, if you're ever just totally depressed, you can turn to Romans chapter 6 and 7. Where the Apostle Paul, who wrote more scripture than anyone else, more than New Testament, where the Apostle Paul describes in himself this same struggle. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. You know, there's this trail in life, I'm trying to go down it, and the very ways I don't want to fall off the side are the ways that I do. And it's in that context that Paul says, praise God, Romans 8 verse 1, that there's no condemnation, there's no shame and judgment on those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the power of the law, my sin and shame, couldn't set me free, the power of grace and God's Holy Spirit living in me can do. So that's what we're learning about today. And here's our next observation. Why is it that we fixate on these things we don't want to do and we do them? Well, here's why. Because shame gives added power to the mistakes that we most fear. See, uh, does alcohol have a power? Well, sure. Does pornography have a power? Yes. These things, these addictions that we all struggle with and we all have our own ones, they do have a power. Uh, The addiction of regret, the, uh, the addiction of just being discontent. 
They, they, they do have a little bit of power in and of themselves. But as a pastor, I've observed that the vast majority of the time, the greater power at work in a person's life is the power of shame. They think the alcohol is so powerful, but it's their shame that's continuing to drive them back to it. It's their shame that continues to drive them back to their discontent, to their regret. Shame gives an added power to the mistakes we most fear. And so we can hear a message like last week's when we learned that in Christ we're not only forgiven, we're also honored. And, and we get that up here and we, it kind of starts to sink into our heart. But then we make a mistake. And we think, how, how, how do I get rid of this shame? How do I get this shame off of my back and live the life of freedom that God has designed for me? Well, the good news is that in Christ, we can be entirely set free. doesn't mean we'll never experience shame again, but we can be set free from a life that is defined by and controlled by shame. And and here's our big idea today, good news for you, that we're going to see in God's scripture. For some of us, this big idea is a whole new way of thinking about our Christian life. For some of you, it might not be, but for those of us where this is a new idea, this, this is a powerful idea. Uh, some pastors every week say this can change your life. And I guess maybe anything could change your life. But I really, really have experienced it. This can change your life. And here's the big idea. We don't grow by never messing up. We grow by returning to God when we do. See, when you have a mentality that I can never go off the trail. And then you do go off the trail. It leaves you so defeated, so discouraged, so weighed down in shame that after enough times of that, you end up giving up. And I see lots of Christians who who end up giving up because they just say, "I, I guess I'm not cut out for this. I keep messing up. They don't realize we all mess up. The goal is not to never mess up. That's a good goal, but it's an unrealistic goal. The goal is to return to God when you do mess up. It's a change of mindset. And, and, and when the goal is I can never mess up, that's a, that's a mindset that I am defined by my mistakes. When, when the goal is when I mess up, I want to return to God as fast as possible. That's a mindset that I'm defined by grace. It's a mindset that his grace is more powerful than my mistakes. So the goal is not to never make a mistake. The goal is to believe grace when you do. And some people might think, well, is that just a license to just go out? And No, 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 not at all. Because the goal is to get back on the trail. But, but if your goal is to never ever leave the trail, and every time you go off a little bit, you just suffer under this severe uh, shame. I can't believe I left the trail. Right? Then, then you end up just sitting on the side. And then you go deeper and deeper into an addiction or something that makes you feel momentarily free of your shame. The best way to get back on the trail is to fix your eyes on Jesus, realize that he has covered your shame, and he wants to get you back on the trail. He wants to keep you moving forward and growing spiritually. Here's one verse that summarizes this truth. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 tells us this. Godly sorrow. So sorrow is like this form of, it's a form of shame. It's a form of realizing what I did was wrong. When I talked that way to my spouse, it was wrong. 
When I treated my child that way, when it was, it was wrong. When I clicked on that, it was wrong. When I thought that, it was wrong. When I did that, it was wrong. There's a godly sorrow, and, and it leads to something. Repentance. Repentance is a humility before God that says, God, I can't get this right on my own. And I've messed up again. And Lord, I'm broken about it. I believe you died on the cross for this. And Jesus, I don't want to live as a slave to that thing. I want to turn from it. I want to get back on the trail. I want to live the life you've designed for me. Godly sorrow brings repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation. It's that repentance that, that brings us back into the family of God. Scripture says that we've all sinned and we're all separated from God. And until we have this defining moment where we come back to God, we cannot experience salvation. And by the way, that original word for salvation there means so much more than just being saved from something. It means to be restored. When you repent before God, you have a godly sorrow. It leads you to repentance and then God restores you. He saves you. And and he does that one time when you come to him and you're uh, adopted into his family by believing in Christ's work on the cross. After that, you're never going to get kicked out of God's family. But if you're like me, you're still going to sin. You're still going to make mistakes. And you get to practice this day after day, week after week. That there's a godly, genuine sorrow that brings you to repentance, leads you back to salvation. And I love that. It leaves no regret. So if you have a lot of shame in your life, the, the question is, is my shame full of regret? Is my shame a black hole, a never-ending pit of shame? If so, it's probably not godly sorrow. It's this other kind that Paul talks about. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a kind of shame that masquerades as being religious and spiritual, but is actually all about your self-righteousness and the fact that you're not perfect, and it leads to death. So not if you have shame in your life, but when you have shame in your life, God's desire for you is not a never-ending shame that ends in death. His desire is a godly sorrow that leads you to humbly repent, be restored by God, and then have no regrets. I've got an illustration of this for us because often I'll draw this out on paper and since I'm not that good at drawing, I I thought we'd do a visual here. So uh, we've got two spirals up here. And the the idea of the spiral is that every time there's a turn, every turn on here is a mistake that you make in your life, okay? Some of you made a a mistake on the drive here, right? Some of you made a mistake last night, and some of you are judging me right now, and you're making a mistake, okay? (laughs) But the the point is, every one of us, we have a spiral of mistakes. The question is if we're going up toward what God has for us, a life of thriving relationship with him and with others, a life of freedom. As Paul the Apostle says, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Or are we going down the spiral of shame, moving deeper and deeper into our shame, deeper and deeper into private, sinful things that we're ashamed of and we don't want to tell anyone and we carry it around with us and then we end up doing it again and it drives us further and further away from thriving relationships further and further away from freedom, further and further into slavery. Now, the difference of whether you're going up the spiral or down is not if you make mistakes. To go either way, you have to make mistakes, okay? 
Question is, when you make a mistake, do you believe in shame? And do you carry the shame around with you? And if you do, you're going to end up spiraling down another level. You, 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 you make the mistake and you suppress it and you carry it around with you and you try and distract yourself, but it's gnawing at you and it makes you that much more desperate to get some relief from shame. And so whatever your thing is, you go back to it and then you go back to it and then you go back to it and keep spiraling down. The only way to spiral up is not to be perfect. It's impossible for us in these fallen bodies on a fallen earth. The way we spiral up is when we make a mistake, we remind ourselves what we're learning in God's word today. That grace is real. That grace restores me. That grace sets me free. And you're able then to be freed from that shame, to lay that shame down, and God lifts you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, James tells us and Peter tells us. So you could summarize the spiral this way. Shame of failure paralyzes us, pushing us down. Or shame from failures, it paralyzes us and it pushes us down. An awareness of grace... And our, our goal today is not just a generic awareness of grace, but a very real, when there's blood on your hands, when, when it's very real that you've made a mistake, an awareness, yes, I have a godly sorrow. I do not want to live that way. And Jesus, help me believe your grace. Help me get back on the trail and live a life that's not defined by shame, which keeps pushing me further and further toward death, but a life that's defined by grace, a godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which brings salvation and leaves no regrets. Have you seen either of these principles at work in your life? When you think of the things that you wish you didn't do or think or say, do you see the spiral at work? Have you ever experienced the grace spiral? I think the majority of Christians around us have not. And, and it's my heart for you guys. I lived most of my Christian life without really understanding the grace spiral. That when I make a mistake, I can spiral up closer to God by through that mistake becomes an opportunity to better understand God's grace. You could put it this way. In scripture, godly sorrow is to be a stepping stone, not a parking spot or a camping spot or a stumbling block. God uses godly sorrow, but in scripture, it's not to be your dead end. Look at King David, who God says is a man after his own heart, who of all the people in the land, God picks and says, I want that guy to lead my people because he'll lead them to me. But David starts to make some mistakes. And in his mistakes, he starts to spiral down. First, he has an affair with a married woman. Then he kills her husband, who was one of his loyal men. And one mistake leads to another, and he's carrying this shame, and he's spiraling further and further away from God, deeper and deeper into what God does not desire for David's life. But if you read the book of Psalms, you can open to Psalm chapter 51, and you can see that David returns to God. 
And David is a spiritual hero in the rest of scripture, not because he was perfect, but because he returned to God when he failed. In scripture, we see all these heroes of the faith, faith, they fail. And when they do, they experience severe sorrow, a sorrow that comes from God, that is God breaking our stubborn human hearts and us realizing, wow, my way of life is terrible. But the godly sorrow is not a destination. It's a stepping stone. It leads us to a genuine repentance, which leads us to restoration. And once we've experienced God's grace and restoration, we have a life that has no regrets. Because we're able to look back and say, even the things I messed up, my God was big enough to cover up. And in the end, we end up living lives with far fewer mistakes. If you live motivated to not make mistakes, you're going to make a lot more than if you live a life motivated that God's grace can always get me back on the trail. And here's why. I'm not going to digress on this too far. But when, you're, when your primary motivation is to never mess up, then when you mess up, you get so discouraged that sometimes you're like, well, why get back on the trail? And you go further and further off. Typically, the person who has an affair or who becomes an alcoholic or the person who is so prideful that pride topples their life, they didn't get there overnight. They got their one little step of lust or greed or selfishness at a time. And eventually they get to this big legacy-defining mistake. And when your goal is to never make a mistake, then you keep that hidden and you keep quietly inching down that path. But when your goal is, hey, there will be mistakes. And when they happen, I get right back on the trail. Well, you veer off the trail a little bit, but you don't typically go as far off the trail. So godly sorrow is God's plan for us, which leads us to repentance and to salvation and a life of no regret. So now, let's touch back in on who, uh, the story that we typically call the prodigal son. And here's my question. In God's eyes, what defines the shameful son honored? Now, we know as Westerners not living in a shame-honor culture, what defines him to us? That he made a mistake, right? He's the prodigal son. If we summarize his life as Westerners, that's it. That dude made a mistake, That's how we summarize it. But Jesus never summarized it that way. Jesus told the story. He never gave it a title. And was his point that the guy made a mistake? That's an important chapter in the story. But is that the end of the story? Not at all. So let's cruise back through just a few highlights of the story. and, And let's try to find what is it to Jesus that defines this son. Let's look at verse 17. You guys remember this moment, if you weren't here last week, where this prodigal son, he's gotten his inheritance from his dad. This represents generations of toil under the sun. And this son gets all these generations of wealth and, and he goes to Vegas essentially, right? And he, he blows all this money on probably everything that, that you do in Vegas today, right? He just wastes this money in shameful living. So not only in that society was it shameful to leave your home country, to uh, waste your inheritance, but he also does it in shameful living. And then he ends up in this most shameful scenario where his honorable clothes he's had to pawn off. He's working for a foreigner, which was shameful at that time, still is in a lot of those societies. And he's not just working for a foreigner, he's working with the pigs, which is still a symbol of shame in the Middle East. And he's starving. He has no food. And people walk by him and they don't think, oh, poor him. 
In shame, honor cultures, you don't have salvation armies and goodwills, okay? In shame, honor cultures, if, if you're homeless and on the street, well, shame on you for being in a position of shame. And that's where he finds himself. And in verse 17, we see when he came to his senses. And here's my question for you is, have you come to your senses in your shame? Have you ever come to your senses and, and come to the cross? Having come to the cross and been adopted into God's family where there's now a shame spiral in your life, will you come to your senses? And he says, how many of my father's hired servants, they've got food to spare. Here I am starving to death. Come to your senses. Realize God does not desire for you to be spiraling down deeper and deeper into darkness and isolation. Come to your senses. It's not what your father desires for you. So verse 18, he says, I'll set out. I'll go back to my father. And in verse 18 and 19, we see this godly sorrow that leads to repentance. What we don't see, we don't see a manipulative son who says, oh, I know, my dad's kind of soft about this. I'll go back and I'll kind of work this angle on him and, and, and he'll take care of me. This isn't manipulation. This is genuine godly repentance that says, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy. I don't have honor in myself anymore. What I've done is shameful. So make me like one of your servants. And then verse 20. This is a key moment in the story. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. The return. The return. This, this is what Jesus is getting to is that there's a return. There's a turning back to the father. Right? If it wasn't for this... There wouldn't be, we wouldn't even be calling it the prodigal son. It would just be the story of the waiting dad, right? Well, there were two sons. This one asked for his inheritance and he squanders it. And the father keeps waiting for him to return. He never does. This defines the story, the return. This is a key moment. And then the father's response is a key moment. We see some of it in verses 22 and 23. You might remember last week we set the scene of the father looking down and on the horizon he sees his son's silhouette because it says while he was a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And his father runs to him, throws his arms around him, this extravagant display of emotion. And then in this shame honor culture, every symbol of honor, the father takes his honorable robes, his ring of honor, his fatted calf, and he bestows on his son. He says, my honor will cover your shame. So the shameful son is defined according to Jesus, according to the story itself, not by his mistakes. Yes, that's part of the story, but it doesn't define the story, but by his return and his father's extravagant restoration. Returned and restored. If there wasn't the return, the story wouldn't be what it is. And he could have returned and the father could have said, Sure, I forgive you, go live in the servant's house, right? And there wouldn't be this radical restoration. What makes the story the story, where Jesus is saying, here's God the Father's heart towards you, is the return of the person and the radical restoration of God. I wonder, can you think of some areas in your life where you still define yourself as the prodigal? Are there some areas in your life where you have returned to God and when he sees you, he sees you as returned and restored. But when you see yourself, 
You see the prodigal. You see the mistakes. God defines me in Jesus. Not by my mistakes, but by my return and his extravagant restoration. Do you believe that? Because these, these are Jesus' words. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that about the people you love? Do you still define them by their mistakes? The prodigal son is not to Jesus the prodigal son. He's the formerly shameful son who's honored because he returned and out of the father's overwhelming love, he was restored. We don't grow by never messing up. We grow by returning to God when we do. And for some of us who've lived under a whole lot of shame in our lives, it's just a great freedom <laughs> to approach life with, you know, the goal today is not to never make a mistake. The goal is to believe grace and return to God when I do. And I've just experienced in my life that when I live that way, I end up making a lot less mistakes. And I end up understanding and living grace. The goal in all this is to believe in grace more than we believe in shame. And for many of us, if we were really honest, if it was really put down on paper, the truth, the black and white reality would be that we believe in shame more than we believe in our Savior. We believe that sin has more power than Jesus has. That's, that's how many of us live. So let's look at another example of this. It's the story of the shameful woman in the shameful Because as you as you start to read the gospels through this lens of the shame honor culture, you start to realize so many of these stories are not just oh that's a nice moving story. They're stories about shame and honor. This story is typically called uh, the adulterous woman. It's in John chapter eight, and we we read this in verse two. At dawn, he Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. Temple courts are a place of honor. Uh, The highest place of honor was the temple. In this society at this time. So Jesus is an honored rabbi. Teaching in an honored place. All the people gather around him. So there's this big circle of people. And then Jesus sits down in the circle. To teach everyone. This is how rabbis taught in that day. Verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They bring in a woman. Who has just been caught in adultery. They make her stand before the group, okay? So you can picture this circle of people, this honorable place. It would be kind of like if, if, if someone dragged someone in here right now and said, look at this woman, I just caught her sleeping with her neighbor's husband. But, but, but way, way more gravity than we can understand because it's a shame on her culture. She's doing a shameful thing. She's caught in the act and her shame is brought into this place of honor. This, this is a, a real contrast scenario. They make her stand before the group. Can you imagine you're sitting there listening to Jesus teach and, and you hear this scuffling and you hear a woman whimpering, a grown woman whimpering and, and they're dragging her by her wrists and they push her out into the middle and they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Shame. In the law of Moses, were commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? 
We're told in the next verse, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. See, the, the, the Pharisees, they, the, I'm not going to do a whole sermon on that thing about the law of Moses, but people don't, didn't actually get stoned for having an affair, okay? The, the, the Pharisees, well, typically, there's exceptions, obviously, but the Pharisees, what they're doing is they're, they're using this woman's shame for their purposes, and some of you, if you carry enough shame, you'll end up getting used by other people because your shame just puts you in a situation like that. But ultimately, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to use your shame for his purposes. And that's what these, these Pharisees and teachers of the law are doing. But Jesus bends down, okay? He, honor is up, shame is down, okay? Jesus bends down. He starts to write something in the dirt. We don't know what. Doesn't say anything for a while. They keep badgering him. Come on, Jesus. What are you going to do? Because all they want is for Jesus to say, yeah, go ahead and kill her. And then now Jesus is a murderer. Or for Jesus to say, don't kill her. And now they can say Jesus doesn't keep the law. They think they've got him. They think they have manipulated. They've created this circumstance where Jesus cannot possibly come out the good guy. Somehow as almighty God, Jesus knows what passage of scripture to bend down and start scrawling into the dirt that they all see what it is and they whisper it around and Jesus straightens up and says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, the circle's already made. When someone gets stoned and it still happens in the Middle East today in shame on our cultures, people circle up around the victim. The first person throws the first rock. And the person, and then there's more rocks. And the kids get in on it. The person falls over eventually, and they keep throwing these rocks until the person doesn't get up. And they keep throwing the rocks. Jesus says, whoever's without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Verse 8, again, he stoops down. He starts to write again. We wish so desperately we could know what he wrote. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time. You can almost hear the rocks dropping to the ground. The oldest ones go first until only Jesus is left with the woman standing there. Can you see the scene in your mind? It's temple courts, big crowd. Jesus is teaching circles. She's dragged in. She's going to die. She's probably seen this happen to other people. She's going to die. And Jesus, he, he doesn't just deal with her shame. He literally saves her life. And whatever it is that Jesus wrote, whatever it is that he'd been teaching on, whatever in the context that as almighty God, he was able to point out, everybody leaves. And now she's standing there. And he's standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, that was not a pejorative. That was not a negative thing to say woman in that language at that time. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Get back on the path. Get back on the trail. 
The older translations say, go and sin no more. See, God's house is full of people who lived under shame and scorn, but are now honored by Jesus. That's what the church is. That's what we are. We're just a whole bunch of people who used to live under shame, but Jesus has picked us up, dusted us off, and honored us. Have we forgotten it? Do we live it daily? Could summarize her story this way. When we are down in our failure or regret, we've gotten off the path. Satan, he accuses. Did you know that Satan's name literally means the accuser of the brethren? Satan is an accuser. And when you're down, he's going to accuse you. He's going to kick dirt in your face. He's going to kick you while you're down and push you deeper and deeper into a life that's controlled by shame. But when you find yourself down there looking up, that's not what Jesus does. If you have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, if you return to God, he forgives and he lifts us up and he sends us out. Go, you can do better than this. This isn't who you are anymore. You can walk worthy of the family you're in. I'll give you the strength. You don't have to live that way. We don't grow by never messing up. We grow by returning to God when we do. So here's the question for you, getting personal. Where you have mistakes in your life, we all do. Where you have mistakes in your life, are you moving down that spiral? Driven lower and lower by shame? Or are you moving up, carried along by an awareness of grace? Yes, was wrong and I'm genuinely sorrowful about it and I repent and I return to God and I'm restored and I get set back on the trail. Psalm 119 says, I run in the paths of your commands for you have set my heart free. That's how you run in the paths of God's commands. You, you feed on his word and, and in your failures you believe his grace. In your moments of failure, choose grace and restoration instead of shame and isolation. I've seen these billboards down in Phoenix and there's some stickers around about CPR. If you don't know CPR, the sticker says um, to, to do uh, pushes to the rhythm of stand alive. Have you guys seen those? So if you don't know CPR and someone's there and you need to save their life, you just go, ah, 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 staying alive, right? And I guess apparently that rhythm, that rhythm is, is close enough to what the, what the, uh, what are they called? Compressions are supposed to be. That's one of those things that you hope sticks in your mind so that if there's an emergency, I remember when I had been taking lifeguarding classes in high school and a couple summers later I was working as a camp counselor. I'm driving down the road and on the side of the road is this guy who'd been hit by a car, hit and run. And he's laying on the road. He'd been riding a bicycle and he's bleeding. There's this huge pool of blood around him. And in the moment, I remembered what I had been taught about, you know, I could see the blood coming out of his brachial artery here and I remembered to, to tie to put a, a tourniquet there and tie the blood off so that, so that he wouldn't bleed out and die. 
And what I'm giving you guys today, what God is giving us from his word, is one of those in-the-moment things that right now you might be thinking cranberry, turkey, football, right? But I'm telling you, embed this in your mind. Open your heart. Say, Holy Spirit, plant this deep within me because you will have a moment of failure again in your life. And it's in that moment. Just like giving someone rescue uh, compressions or, or putting a tourniquet on them. It's in that moment that you're going to decide, do I believe my shame and carry it around with me? And if you do, you will spiral down. Or in this moment, do I remember the extravagant love of the Father? In this moment, do I remember that if I will return to him, he will restore me and I don't have to live under shame and I can believe in grace. And if you get rid of that shame in the moment, then you're way less likely to go repeat that action or that activity or that thought. In your moments of failure, it's where the rubber meets the road on this. When you just ate the whole container of ice cream. Or you just maxed out the credit card. And the shame comes. Let it be a godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. See, God does not want you living in constant fear of your past and potential mistakes. I meet a lot of Christians who live their lives here. They've accepted God's forgiveness. They're going to be in heaven. But their life on earth, it ain't the abundant life It's not full of joy and peace and patience and kindness. Why? Because they are living in constant fear of what they did and what they might do. That is not God's desire for you to live there. That's the worldly sorrow that brings death. God desires for you to live in a constant awareness, not of sin and shame, but of him and his grace. Constantly aware of how powerful his grace is to cover your past mistakes and your present and future mistakes. And when we live that way, ironically, we end up making fewer of them. There was a song 10 or 15 years ago and the lyrics said, The saints are just the sinners who fall down. And get up. Saints are not perfect people. The saints are the sinners who fall down. Get up. And get up. And get up. I grew up singing a hymn. About how God's grace is greater than our sin. And that's part of where we got to say, Lord, help my unbelief. Because what this comes down to is, do I really believe that his grace is bigger than my failures? Do I really believe that God is a mightier force than my shame and my mistakes? Will I really let go of my own self-righteousness, which keeps insisting, no, if I make perfect living the standard, I can do it. Even though my track record says otherwise. I'm going to read you the words of this hymn because they're just beautiful. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. 
grace that is greater than all our sin. Listen to this verse. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Sin and despair, they become this icy black waters that you're drowning in. And sin and despair, they just want to push you down and down. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, the blood of Jesus, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? So this week, today, this afternoon, when you step into a failure or mistake, remember the king. Remember Jesus the rabbi there in the temple who lifts us up. And in that moment, choose grace rather than shame. Give it a try. I'm telling you, you can reverse the direction of the spiral in your life. Well, God can. If you'll claim this promise in your moments of failure when the blood is still on your hands. Imagine with me a life no longer paralyzed by fear of failure. Imagine a life where you're no longer defined in your own thinking uh, by your mistakes. Imagine a life where you're no longer contained in your thinking by the mistakes that other people have made. Because you just have this growing awareness that God's grace can cover, can restore, can honor, can cleanse. A life of freedom breathed out in confidence that my God is able to restore. We don't grow by never messing up. We grow by returning to God when we do. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, you love the men and the women in this room so, so much. Lord, more than we can understand. And you desire that everyone in this room would come to salvation, Lord. Right now, I want to give an opportunity. If you're here today and you don't know with 10 out of 10 certainty that if you died today, you would be with God in heaven. If you don't know with 10 out of 10 certainty that your sins have been washed away, that your shame has been covered by the honor of God, if that's you today, then, then I, I, I encourage you, I invite you, to come to the foot of the cross and there to believe in the almighty God who paid the penalty for your mistakes, who carried your shame so that you no longer have to carry it. If that's you today, maybe it's that first time in your life where a godly sorrow leads you to repentance. We're told that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And if you believe in your heart that he died on the cross for your sins, you will be saved. You can do that today. Many of us in here, we know we're forgiven. And we're learning that with that forgiveness, we're honored by our Father. But if you're like me here, you've got a hard time believing that in daily life. I just want to pray together with you right now. Will you, will you pray with me? Father, 
we open our hearts to you. Will you help us to understand who we are as your honored children? Will you help us to walk worthy and live like restored sons and daughters who are co-heirs with Christ, who have robes of honor and crowns of honor because of your radical restoration, because of your extravagant love? Father, in our lives, our mistakes block our awareness of that. We mess up and, and, and in our shame, we run further and further away from you. And that shame drives us deeper and deeper down that spiral. And today, Lord, all across this room, we are surrendering to you the shame of pornography, the shame of alcohol, the shame of lust, the shame of greed, the shame of gossip, the shame of regret, the shame of pharisaical pride. Or those and so many other shames. We give them to you and we pray, Lord, in our moments of failure, will you enable us to believe in your grace more than we believe in our shame? In our moments of failure, will you allow us to have a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and salvation, that we would live lives with no regrets because we're more aware of your grace than we are of our sin. We're more aware of your power than the power of shame. Lord, I know you desire that for these men and women. I just pray by the work of your Holy Spirit, by their gathering in home groups and reading your word and reviewing these truths in the moments of crisis, will you bring these thoughts to their mind? And will you enable us like that prodigal son to return to you, to be restored by you, so that our lives are not defined by our mistakes, but by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.